No, I say, I say to the fans that the fans are the fans and the fans have the right to have their opinions and to have their reactions. Football, everything. I'm so happy, believe me. I'm so happy. Lewandowski, you know, Robert Lewandowski. Dream team, dream team. Fire, swoosh. I am flabbergasted and they're here. I wouldn't even let them on the bus after the match. I would get a taxi back to Manchester. <laughs> the only time a tennis ball has ever made me angry. What's viral on Twitter for us tonight is tennis ball. These boys are fucking utility <laughs> giants. It's unbelievable. This is a great football and country produced players and where we play that rubbish. Yeah. In August 2020, yeah, I'm taking over and that's still decided. I'm angry, I'm angry, Tony, I have to be honest. Stephen Kenny, we've won it. So go on, go back to Scotland and get lost. And I'm certainly going to be a part of that. I'm going to manage that. I'm going to make sure we're even better. And Pajic is there! Robbie Brady brings us all to our feet. Tony Adams, John Terry, Rio Ferdinand, Nemanja Vidic, Virgil van Dijk. And now I think it's time... Welcome Nat Phillips into the bastion of great Premier League central defenders as he single-handedly claws Liverpool into the Champions League top four. Hello and welcome to this week's Trade the Back podcast. I'm joined this time by Enda Higgins and Simon Kelly to take a look at the Premier League and beyond. How are you lads? How are you doing? Good stuff, how are you? So we have Simon filling Phil's boots uh, for the night. So um, Liverpool biasness has been put aside. So it's uh, free reign for uh, for Enda to take on, the, on uh, whatever agenda he has to set out um i suppose in terms of the top four race it's kind of better late than ever for liverpool um clowning themselves back into the after their mid-season slump with leicester and west ham's end of season slip-ups there leaving the door open um and class men's thanks to a, a gift from the gods really from for allison against against west brom um and then nat phillips the other night getting inhabited by the the ghost of virgil van dyke really in that performance against uh burnley um, in the it's in their hands now, but will the discourse be too much in in Roy Hodgson's last game for for Crystal Palace there at the weekend? Yeah, I mean, in my defence, and I, you know, Phil was very <laughs> very downhearted about Liverpool's top was, four chances yeah. a few weeks ago, and I had to kind of talk him off the ledge there. Um, so it's kind of gone slightly the way I expected. Although I think last week I was kind of drifting again as to who, who would make it, but you know, I didn't really trust Moyes. Or Rogers to kind of get the job done. Um, so yeah, four wins in their last four, um, and, and the West Brom match was just something we have to touch on, just because it, it's one of those things that um, you kind of forget all your allegiances for about thirty seconds, um, and you just kind of make random noises like Kent Brockman or something like that, <laughs> because you know. <laughs> We usually when you see a goalkeeper score, it's kind of scruffy, you know, a bit Jimmy Glass mm. or Schmeichel in 95, something like that. But I mean, an absolute pinger of a header, um, just as Martin Tyler had said, you know, Allison's coming up. It was just unbelievable. And uh, then Jamie Carragher obviously screeching in the background as well to add to the drama. So, uh, you know, I, I said at the time on Twitter, you know, you just can't despise it. Um, and it's probably going to be, one of the moments of a pretty dour Premier League season, if we're being honest. Um, so, you know, ideally I wouldn't like Liverpool to make top four because it probably strengthens their hand in the summer if they are kind of looking for reinforcements, especially defensively. But as you said, Nat Phillips, you know, seems to have really progressed, especially since the United match where he made uh, a crucial clearance off the line at 3-2 for Greenwood. You know, was excellent last night. Um, and moving Fabinho back into midfield, Thiago looks to be back to some sort of form that we saw last season at Bayern. 
Um, so it's come together just about at the right time. Obviously, mm. it's not the title defense that they would have been hoping for, but you know, to to sneak top four at the end when it all looked like it was falling apart from them, you know, is is credit to them, and and they managed to stick in there. Um, helped a bit by Leicester in particular, um, and we we discussed kind of the Roger stuff last week and. <laughs> And how he's viewed in the English media, and obviously the FA Cup win will just just re-enhance that. But obviously they've they've most likely blown top four from almost an unassailable position now for two seasons in a row. And considering the resources and players they have at their disposal, um, that'll be a big disappointment for them. Um, but yeah, it certainly makes the summer more interesting in terms of what Liverpool could potentially do. Because I feel that if they hadn't made top four, um, considering how tight FSG have become in the past sort of twelve to eighteen months since COVID hit, in particular. Uh, I think it could have been a very lean summer for them. Um, yeah, so like it's interesting. I mean, trust Liverpool to to claw it back right at the end, I suppose. But um, you know, they've they've definitely been the form team, um, and seems to be the only team that actually want to get into the top four at this point. So um, yeah, they've 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 done well to claw it back, and I I I, I do feel slightly sorry for Brennan Rodgers because it seems to happen to him every season uh, at this point now, and it's not great to have in the CV that kind of slide, but um. Yeah, I suppose it's going to be an interesting uh, weekend now. I think Liverpool just about have it. I, I can't see Leicester um, uh, getting it. And I think there's a, a bit of a goal difference as well that Liverpool have in, in their favour. And I can't see Leicester trashing Spurs as, as bad as Spurs are at this point. Mm. I suppose on Leicester, and I mean, they had that fantastic cup win last weekend. And, you know, it was great to see... Um, the scenes after the game with the, with the owner um, after everything that had happened, but at full time at the at the the Chelsea in on Tuesday night in the Premier League, that wasn't the kind of grin of a man that was disappointed to miss out on Champions League. I I think he might um, might secretly kind of like um, concentrating on on domestic affairs and uh, kind of leaving the European to to everyone else and kind of sticking away with his. Uh, his um his impressive Premier League runs and then kind of sliding away towards the end, but everyone still has uh, a little bit of a good impression of him, especially now that uh, he does have that FA Cup win in the bag. Yeah, I suppose he's a you know he wants to be known as that kind of that fight fighting mentality, and I suppose he can you can see that in his his interviews that he seems to release at a, a very convenient times <laughs> that he wants to be known as that kind of scrapper and the guy who gets things done. But yeah, I don't know. I mean. It it's it never looks good, I suppose, that slide, but I think he, now that he has that trophy under his under his belt, um, it kind of does cement him in, in that kind of top manager bracket in, in England anyway. Um and we'll see where he goes from here. I mean, whether he stays at Leicester, I, I, I assume he will stay at Leicester uh, for next season. Um it's gonna be a, a mighty task for him to repeat uh, what he's done this season with them. Um, especially with, with other other teams, I suppose, coming up behind them. Um, but yeah, we, uh, it's, I suppose it's it's kind of all to play for um, next season anyway. Yeah, I suppose you'd have to just wonder how it affects their transfer targets if they do miss out on top four. But mm. as you say, Kevin, it was a bit weird how he didn't seem too upset no. um, at the end of it. Uh, maybe still riding the, the wave of winning the FA Cup. Uh, it looks like Sumari is going to happen for you know, cheapest chips, 15 million, which would be a very interesting signing for them. Um and they'll probably just hang on to all the players they do have at the moment as well. So it, it's a pretty strong squad as it is. So if you add Samaria to that, um, some good young players coming through as well. So perhaps he fancies, you know, given domestic competition, a better go next season. And then obviously Europa, you'd fancy them to to be comfortable enough with the squad they have in the group stages at least. Yeah. So 
Yeah, he, he's he's not looking too stressed about it at the moment, certainly compared to last season where it was kind of all or nothing about getting into the Champions League. Um, whereas he'd probably feel that Leicester are in a better position this year in terms of, you know, Ian Acho has progressed. Uh, they've had some good signings last summer as well. They've all integrated fairly well. Um, and the squad is still a good age, really, apart from Verdi uh, and maybe Johnny Evans, but everybody else is, is in pretty good shape. So uh, I think Leicester will be quite content going into next season even even mm. if they do finish yeah. fifth um i was bigging up uh west ham there a couple of weeks ago and and moisey let me down um sliding yeah, down it, to, it's, uh, to, yeah, to get used stage. to it get used to it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um sparrows then simon are out of contention but uh, i suppose they still have um they might have a hand to play yet with uh, with leicester at the weekend yeah, it's a it's an interesting situation at Tottenham at the moment. I mean, there is uh, there's so much going on, and, and it's all seemed to kind of capitulate at the at the same time um, with with the Super League, with Mourinho getting sacked, with uh, Kane announcing his his he wants to leave. Um, it's all just kind of uh, gone 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 one way for them at the moment. So, yeah, Spurs are in a in a strange position in the league. They're kind of they're seventh place now, and they're. Um, in and around West Ham, so they're kind of they want to get they want to get that Europa League spot, but at the other at the other end of it, there's that Europa League conference spot, which I don't think they'll be too happy to have. Uh, I think most Spurs fans would probably take uh, a year out of uh, Europe rather than be in the in the Conference League. If if they do get in there, they'll probably just play play the the young lads. So um, yeah, there's a bit to play for for Spurs yet, but I mean. It, Judging on 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 the performance at, at Villa, uh, it was it was a pretty it was a pretty bad one to watch, and Spurs looked devoid of anything. It was it was interesting that you know at one point Kane, Ali, Son, and Bale were on the pitch at the same time, and you really wouldn't have noticed any of them were there at the point. So, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a weird one for Spurs at the moment, but I suppose we'll see what happens on the weekend, and then obviously. With the new manager coming in, probably going to get announced maybe next week or the week after. That's another. That's another story, really. So yeah, it's all all up in the air for Spurs. Is there any indication of, of who that will be? And I know I've seen um, um, is it Felipe Unzaghi's name has been has been on the list, and uh, Scott Parker as well. Yeah, you know, he's been relegated. Yeah, it's a weird one. Um, so. The, the Italian press have been really promoting all of the Italian managers for for the Spurs job, and and from what I can tell, um, there doesn't seem to be any interest from Spurs for any Italian managers. So there's been about six or seven at the moment uh, from Italy, kind of get touted for the job, and there doesn't seem to be any interest on Spurs side. From what I can see, there's four candidates um, on the shortlist. It seems to be uh, Roberto Martinez, Graham Potter, Ralph Rangnick, and um, Brendan Rodgers. Uh, with maybe Scott Parker uh, just below them as well. Um, I mean, what's looking likely for me is uh, Roberto Martinez keeps coming up, and uh, I don't know how happy Ooh. Spurs fans would be with that one. It's not the most inspirational of uh, of choices by Levy, and given that this is probably the biggest decision he'll have to make as a chairman in his 20 years at Spurs because of the position that Tottenham are in, uh, I don't think Roberto Martinez is the right fit uh, just yeah, I don't know. I, personally, I think Gra- uh, Graham Potter would be an okay choice. Uh, yeah. He he's done he's done well at Brighton. I mean, in in terms of his style of play and his um, his philosophy, he wants to get across on the pitch. Obviously, it doesn't really come across on the pitch because it, it is Brighton and they have limited um, 
talent in their squad, but his ideas are there and, and they match up with what Spurs want to do. Um, then you have someone like, you know, like Rogers. I think, yeah, as I said before, I don't think he's going to be leaving Leicester. I don't know why he would at this point because they're, they're, they're well and above Tottenham at this point. Um, and then the other one kind of out of, out of left field would be, uh, Ralph Ragnick. Um, so I don't know if, if people know too much about him, but he, he was part of the setup at, at Leipzig and, um, the Red Bull kind of set up in, in director of football roles and in a, um, in a managerial role as well. So he, he seems to be that kind of guy that is really, really well revered in Germany. If you ask, yeah. if you ask Klopp, if you ask Tuchel, he seems to be the name that gets bandied around most of, of, of an inspiration. Um, so it'd be interesting if Spurs could get him in and maybe a, a director of football role, not even a managerial role because Levy could want to take the heat off himself a bit and give him a chance to kind of spread in a new DNA at, at Tottenham, which is they, they, they really need at this point. Um, but yeah, uh, there's a, there's a still a few names there. And I, I, I also have a feeling there'll be, there'll be names coming out of hat over the next week or so that, that haven't been talked about yet. I don't want to bring up old wounds, but it's kind of hard to imagine whoever does get the job will, will be as good as um, Pochettino. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I mean, like um, what they're looking at and in, in what kind of Daniel Levy has said about what they want in the new manager, they're basically just describing um, <laughs> Pochettino. You know, it's, it's like, it's like when you come, when you come back with a, with a new girlfriend after breaking up with your, with your ex and they're exactly the same, you know what I mean? It's, it's like, uh, it's like, yeah, the, what, what's the message here? You know, but yeah, nobody's going to replace Pochettino and what he, what he's done at Spurs. But I suppose you can try and get close. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, maybe Pochettino might might come back at some point in the next couple of years. He he's never ruled it out, and he's always said he wanted to come back. But I I think it could be a bit too early for him. Mm. And Simon, the Harry Kane interview with Gary Neville seemed very out of character, and he's talking like mm. a guy who is in control of a situation that he is, has absolutely no control over considering he signed a six-year contract. <laughs> uh, what is the thinking there? Uh, is he just trying to force Spurs' hand into maybe having a, a good summer or is he actually trying to just force his way out at this point? I think it's the latter. I think he's trying to force his way out. Um, yeah, it, it, it struck it struck me as strange. I mean, when the news broke on Monday... I think it was Sky Sports that first reported it. And I kind of batted it away saying, ah, this is nothing new. It's it's kind of just a rehashed version of what he's already said. Then, you know, more and more stuff started to come out about it. And then it, it turned out that he'd, he'd been interviewed by Gary Neville and this was coming out later in the week. It came out today. And yeah, he, he sends a kind of mixed message in the interview if you if you listen to it. I mean, he, on one hand, he says he never says he wants to leave Spurs, but he also says he never said he, want, he, he wanted to stay at Spurs. So I think that, He's seen he's seen himself and where he is in his career. I mean, he's twenty seven. I think he's turning twenty eight in June, and he he's looking at Spurs now. And what Spurs need is a complete overhaul, and they need a couple of years to get back into the top four and and to rearrange themselves after after Mourinho, because um, this season has been an absolute disaster for them. And Harry Kane has just carried them on on his back. I mean, he's he's played two or three positions at that points. Just you know, if he could pass to himself, he could. So. I think Harry Kane is looking at the situation at Spurs and saying, "Look, there's no chance I'm, I'm getting any silverware here, um, and I'm, you know, I'm coming to the end of my my peak, I suppose you could say, and I'm gonna I'm gonna just kind of stir the pot a bit and see what I can get. But on the other hand, I mean, Kane has uh, 
Kane signed a, a contract, a six-year contract in, in 2018. So there's three years left on that. And what, what Kane is basically saying that he believes he has a gentleman's agreement with Daniel Levy that he, he, he saw out this season and, and then he can he can kind of make his way to to another club this season. But I mean, I don't think a gentleman's agreement is in uh, Daniel Levy's vocabulary, to be fair. Like, he's not going to want to sell. And, and I think ultimately... This story, this story could get blown out of proportion. I honestly think that Daniel Levy could just say, "You look absolutely not. You're not leaving. Um, it's out of the question." And sorry, sorry about it, but you're going to have to maybe next year, but you're going to have to do another season for us. And I mean, I suspect he'll want to stay in the Premier League. Um, like I can't see him ever moving to to Spain or Italy. So you'd imagine. His options are probably limited to the two Manchester clubs, um, unless Chelsea are interested in getting involved. But you'd imagine that Daniel Levy only kind of has to play a, a, a game of hardball with City and United and, and kind of up the fee. Because um, the, the ball is in his court, like you said, with the, the three years left in his deal. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if... like. Obviously, he'd be a huge signing and he'd be fantastic and he, you're probably guaranteeing 25, 30 goals a season. But is that what United need or indeed like City considering Pep's disinterest in, in high-level strikers? Yeah, well, Pep has tried very hard to kind of remain within some sort of budget when it has come to signings, in fairness. Mm. Um, probably something that he doesn't get enough credit for. I know Diaz was probably 68 million, but has proved worth every penny but he's never kind of even gone near that 100 million mark and if we're looking at Kane with three years left in his deal and then who you're dealing with uh, I can't see anything under kind of between 130 and 150 um, and then you look at what United could do in the summer with that sort of money um, you know Sancho's been touted at kind of 80 to 90 million euro which is about 100 million pound um, and potentially getting a six and a defender in as well so I, I can't see United going for that type of deal at the moment and the fact that you'd have to deal with Levy um, I, I I just think there's too much in Levy's favour in those type of negotiations um, for United to be entertained that sort of thing and then you know apparently Kane is more intrigued by City anyways which you know yeah. you wouldn't blame him yeah. um, <laughs> you know fair enough um, although he, he has the face of a tricky red and the haircut but uh, <laughs> um, I I I'd be very surprised if he rocked up at Old Trafford. If he did, I'd be delighted, but I just don't think, yeah. you know, nothing that United have done in the past two to three years would suggest that they're willing to spend that type of money. They tried to to get 30 or 40 million euro off Sancho's fee last year um, and then try to make it up in add-ons. So um, Levy won't be entertaining that kind of behaviour, um, you know, um, from whoever is at the negotiation table for United after Woodward leaves. Um, mm. It would be too big of a job anyways for somebody new coming in to negotiate that kind of transfer as well, uh, which we need to take into account for United. Um, if we remember Woodward's first summer, for example, it was you know, Fellaini on transfer deadline day. So um, hopefully we can get an improvement on that type of negotiation anyways. But uh, I can't see United going for that. You mentioned um, Ruben Diaz there and he was announced as the Football Writers Player of the Year today ahead of Harry Kane. And I mean, for probably most of the season, it was kind of assumed that DS would be there or thereabouts. But he kind of received a little bit of backlash after it was um, announced today, I suppose, considering, um, Simon, like you said, how influential Kane has been in Spurs' season, even though um, overall they haven't, a good, haven't had a good season themselves domestically. But 
Um, I mean, his stats are so impressive. 22 goals, 13 assists, um, the most assists in the league. Has, is that a little bit of a snob, even though you you have to admit that Diaz was was excellent and a, and a huge signing for City? Yeah, I think um, I think Kane will see it as a snob because <laughs> he is really that kind of guy who, who yeah. goes after those individual awards and wants to, wants to rake up everything. But um, I think Ruben Diaz deserves... Uh, deserves it because he's been fantastic for for City, and I think he's been one of the the real key players in in why they're winning the league. You know, and you know, as great as Kane has been, yes, he's been fantastic. But does he have anything to say for it at the end of the season? I mean, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, you could see it as a stub potentially, but um, I, I think ultimately Diaz probably probably deserves it. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the biggest change in City this season, it would be that back four. Um, and Diaz has been a huge part of that as well. I know people are directly comparing his stats with, you know, people like Maguire or Van Dijk's season last season. But City are a much different team to the way those teams set up. Um, and yeah, he's got good protect- protection from Fernandinho in particular when he does play and Rodri. But uh, I think coming from Portugal for that type of fee and to have the impact he he's had... Um, I think it's been the biggest change in, in City this season. And there is a bit of, you know, expecting Kane to do what Harry Kane does at this stage because he's done it for the past two to three seasons. So that's kind of his consistency and brilliance has almost gone against him. Whereas with Diaz, you know, signing a, a defender from Portugal, we've seen with Mangala and to a lesser extent Lindelof, it's not exactly a guaranteed success. And, you know, Diaz, he's still only in his early 20s as well. So, um, you know, I was okay with it. I was surprised to hear that he's the first defender to win it since, you know, Steve Nichol in 1989, Hmm. when you think of some of the defenders that the league has had. So, you know, uh, long overdue for a defender. Um, And and I was okay with it overall. I think if you take Diaz out of that city side more than anybody else, um, you know, we've seen the last few weeks when he hasn't been there, when when they've started Aki or, or you know some of the backups that they have struggled and conceded a lot of goals, um, uh, and in the Champions League in particular, I know that doesn't count for the Premier League Player of the Year, but you know um, he was fantastic as well. Um, so those are the type of things people do take into account when they actually are voting for a player. Um, so no no issues with it for me, but yeah, it's tough on Kane, and you know, hopefully he's not. Uh, threatening his daughter's life again to win an award. But um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I just think Kane's consistency has gone against him at this point uh, when it comes to kind of awards. It's just kind of expected that he's going to produce those type of numbers every year. On the Irish front leads, um, and I mean, probably assume that we'd put them on the back burner for uh, for a couple of months at least, especially having failed to qualify for, uh, for the Euros in the summer. But some good news earlier this week, that they had won the war um, for Ryan Johansson's name, um, the youngster at Seville. A little bit of a tug of war there between Ireland, Luxembourg and Sweden. Um, and it was kind of an indication that um, various rules would prevent him from playing for Ireland, which I think was his uh, his preference at the time. So a huge victory for Ireland. And it kind of follows up quickly as well with um, the news a couple of weeks back that um, Getafe youngster John Joe Patrick Finn as well wants to wants to apply his name for Ireland as well going forward. Yeah, I think it's a I think it's brilliant that that these kind of these players are now kind of turning towards Ireland um as opposed to away from it in in our in our recent history and it's it's brilliant to see and I think it just shows that there is there is a philosophy that we want to implement there and I think these players are picking up on that and um 
hopefully you know it it, ha- it happens more often and you know I'm I'm, I'm delighted that Johansson has has decided he wanted to play for Ireland. I think he's always wanted to play for Ireland. Um, yeah. I think he's tried on on two other occasions, and just because of this FIFA ruling now that that it's changed, that he's he's able to able to do it. So it's it's not a case of um of say uh, Declan Rice or, or Jack Raylish where he's where he's kind of um he's decided at the last minute. I think he's always wanted to play for Ireland. Um, his his mother from from Ireland, and uh, I think his, his dad's from Sweden, but um. Yeah, it's it's great to see these players starting to starting to turn around and and, and say, look, there's there's actually something here, uh, and I, I think it can only it can only go, um, go well for 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 Stephen Kenny, um, and his ideas and philosophies that he wants to get across. That you know these players are actually starting to starting to pick up that now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at Connor Noss as well, obviously coming through Gladbach, mm-hmm. and now we have Johansson mm-hmm. coming through Sevilla. I mean, they're two of the best academies probably in Europe. Yeah. Um, and you combine that with, you know, some of the success that the under-21s have had in the championship this year, which is, you know, one of the most competitive leagues anywhere. Um, so I think things are looking up slowly for Ireland. Um, the the summer training camp is going to be a bit brutal considering how many players we've been told don't want to attend because of how tired <laughs> they are, um, which, is, which is a bit of a shame. But, um, you know, I think in the next three to four years, hopefully we'll see, we'll see a, a very strong... Uh, contingent coming through and I think that was always part of the plan under Kenny um, and I know he's he's had a pretty brutal kind of 18 months of it overall but um, hopefully they do stick with him because I, I do think he is the type of manager who who can mentor those type of players coming through mm-hmm. um, you know so uh, it's it's exciting times I was actually surprised to be honest Johansson did choose us in the end I know he's wanted to play for Ireland but once you once you do play for another country, especially the under twenty ones, even though it was Luxembourg um, and a Sweden are chasing you as well, who have a very strong youth contingent um, mm-hmm. across Europe. Um, but you know, fair play to him, uh, and and obviously he's he's played for Bayern as well, the under nineteen. So he he has a very strong background to him, and, and yeah. it'll be very exciting to see when he does actually play for Ireland. It will be interesting to see if he's um, amongst the names for the summer camp, um, which I think is getting announced next week, and. And like you said, there's a, a raft of injuries and there's a raft of guys who are probably, you know, kind of keen to sit out the summer considering um, last year um, was kind of ruined with COVID. Um, I mean, St. Mirren's Jamie McGrath seems to be the kind of headline new name um, that's going to be added. Uh, he's had a really good season in, in, in Scotland and does look like an exciting player. But in terms of other guys that we might see in, I mean, Johansson might be there. Um, Patrick Finn might be there. I know he's... He's only 17, but he does have some minutes in La Liga, which will stand to him. But it would be good to see the likes of Conor Noss, like you said, um, or Adebayo Odebeko from, from West Ham as well, who looks very impressive. And I think um, uh, he won Player of the Month in in, um, in the PL2 as well. So uh, that should stand to him if uh, if Kenny wants to kind of look that direction for his, for his selection. Yeah, he scored a hat-trick against United Under-21s there five or six weeks back. Um, I know he pulled out of an Irish twenty Under-21 squad there recently, which is quite concerning. So hopefully we can nail him down. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing Nathan Collins, hopefully, if he's recovered from injury, because mm-hmm. I do think he's he's certainly one who'll be you know a future Ireland international for sure. So I imagine it'd be a very young squad. Um, Lumby, maybe Parrish, who's coming to a small bit of form at the end of the season. After a pretty rough loan spell, Ida isn't getting much minutes at, at Norwich lately, but um, we know he's a favourite of of Kenny's. So mm. um, I, I don't think there'll be too many big surprises, but yeah, it'll be a very young looking squad for sure. As 
you know, we've we've heard some of the senior guys um, aren't really too keen on uh, rocking up after a COVID-affected schedule um, to take part in a summer camp. So it'll be interesting to see who does actually make it in the end. Yeah, I think it's um, I think it's coming a good time because I mean, even when the you have the kind of older players not 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 really interested in, in coming, I think now is a brilliant time for um for Kenny to get get a young squad together and really get the the players that he has um he has in mind for for two three years down the line that he wants to implement i mean this is this is his kind of first big um couple of weeks with the team since joining him you know he really hasn't had that much time to to deal with them so uh i think getting getting the right players uh and the young players within this camp is 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 ideal for him to kind of put across his philosophy and what he wants uh, the team to be playing for in the next couple of years because i mean as I said, he didn't have he doesn't have that much time, hasn't had that much time really with, with, with the squad. But I do also think that he he should have an idea of of the players that he wants to to blood in over the next couple of years after this camp is finished. And um I think that's that's gonna be really important going forward. Mm. I suppose it is a good chance for, for some of the lads who have their foot in the door. Um to get ahead to the likes of Jason Knight and Jason Malumbi or even say for example, um Andrew Bamidele, if if he's selected after his uh, his spell at Norwich there mm-hmm. the past couple of weeks, I mean, considering how how poor Shane Duffy's season went, you know, I mean, there's a, a huge opportunity for a for a young fella to come in and kind of stake his claim, but an impressive couple of weeks. Yeah, I mean, he's been phenomenal. I'd, uh, I'd be shocked if he if he wasn't in the squad. To be honest, um, you know. The Norwich fans are absolutely raving about this guy, um, and we, we've seen a few matches on Sky as well. Um, and his statistics are just outrageous. Um, so, really looking forward to seeing seeing what he's capable of. You know, we discussed, you know, one of our previous shows. He's kind of come out of nowhere, fills part of the world to all of a sudden be an important part of you know Norwich's late season performances. Even though they were comfortably top of the league, anyways, but his impact has still still been massive, and and he looks like potentially massive player for Ireland um, and that, that centre-back position with him and hopefully Collins who I'm a huge fan of would put us in good shape for the next few years because you know Duffy going back to Brighton with his tail between his legs after one of the worst loan spells you can imagine at Celtics since probably Tyler Blackett back in you know 2014 um, it really couldn't have gone much worse for him and, and his confidence must be on the floor at the moment um, so uh, I do think we'll, we'll certainly uh, look to a much younger set up uh, going forward quick glance around Europe now lads um, and I suppose Syria has been wrapped up with Inter Milan winning the title there for the last couple of weeks but Juventus hanging on by a thread there uh, in the top four race um, going into the final weekend and it's all to play for between um, AC Milan Napoli and Juventus um, Milan have a kind of tough game um, against Atalanta who you'd imagine would be kind of happy enough to to see Juventus dwindle outside the top four. Um, Juventus are playing at Bologna and Napoli are at home to Verona. So, I mean, the odds probably with Juventus maybe, considering how, how strong Atalanta are, but um, it would, certainly would be a, a huge blow to them, especially after um, the whole Super League shenanigans to uh, miss out on top four there in Italy. Yeah, it would be absolutely massive. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's, it's funny that kind of Juventus are, are that team that, that kind of wanted to stay in, <laughs> and um, they're the team that are are probably at at uh, at the most peril at the moment. So, 
uh, it's going to be a really interesting week in, in Syria. I think that um, there's a lot of there's a lot of interesting things going around Juve at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of players that look to be on their way out. I mean, when you look at like Chiellini, Benucci, is their time up? Um, and then Ronaldo as well. I mean, nobody really knows what's going to happen with him. There's I, I actually heard rumors today that uh, some people saw there was like moving fans outside his outside his house. Um, putting putting his cards away and stuff. So I don't know if he's he's made his mind up that quickly, but um, it could be a hint as to what's to come in the summer. But uh, yeah, really interesting because I mean, Juve are just those stalwarts of the of the, I suppose of the um of the Champions League, and and to see them miss out on it would be um really incredible. I mean, I don't think many people would miss them, but um, uh, yeah, definitely with with the team that they have at the moment. I mean, it's it's a uh, it's a bit of a crazy one. Yeah, I think Napoli are fine against uh, Verona and obviously Atalanta, who've, who've won their last three and, and in usual style, it's all gone very kamikaze, especially the 5-2 yeah. against Parma and the 4-3 mm. the against Genoa. So it'll be interesting to see how Milan can can approach that game, uh, especially with Ibrahimovic out injured. They really struggled against Cagliari last week um, and I think that draw really could cost them Champions League. So uh, I think Juventus might just sneak it, unless Atalanta really throw the towel in the last game but that's not really Gasparini's style um, uh, they almost play with even more freedom somehow uh, now that they've had Champions League wrapped up um, and the last three games have been enjoyably chaotic as as we'd expect for the Atalanta and I don't think that'll suit Milan and, and judging by what a nervous wreck they were against Cagliari um, I think that's a really tough game for them but yeah obviously there and France are the ones to watch this weekend and obviously Spain which we'll cover with Alan later on but um, uh, personally I'd love Juve to miss out just because (laughs) (laughs) you know it's it's like they've been so so naive really this season in just thinking you could bring in Pirlo a a week after he got the under 21 job it it just felt like yeah no matter what we can do we'll we'll win the league it doesn't really matter Um, so the fact that they're fighting just for that fourth place on the last day of the season their recruitment in the last two to three years has been, you know, shambolic, really. Um, they've ruined their wage structure by bringing in Ronaldo. Their highest earner at the time was €10 million Euro a year. Ronaldo got €30 million Euro a year, so it just left them with no other options, really, in terms of strengthening uh, the midfield. And now De Ligt probably doesn't have a, a partner for next season. They've already uh, they've already sold Rugani in the summer. Chiellini's probably going to retire, and Benucci's 34 now, I think. So there's just five or six holes in this in the first team um bailed out by Chiesa in the cup last night uh, who's been their best signing probably in the last couple of seasons Bentacore and Rabio are really struggling in midfield at the moment as well Kuleveski has actually been very good this season it's kind of gone a bit under the radar um from Juve fans I find um for whatever reason but um yeah it's, it's going to be an interesting watch for sure you mentioned France there, and I mean, we over the past few weeks we're kind of willing Lille over the line, um, yeah. and they're kind of like uh, they're they're like someone coming up to the 18th hole at the Masters, and they're just kind of have a little bit of the jitters. Um, yeah. all against Saint Etienne um, at the weekend, and then on the other hand, you have PSG who hammered Reims four 0 followed that up with um, with uh, a French Cup winner against Monaco last night. Um, a one point gap, but Lille have um on Jairs left um next week. So you, it's a little bit it, it's a tricky one, but um it'd be some moment if they did leave it to the last second and, and just about got over the line ahead of PSG. 
Yeah, they let us down badly at the weekend, to be really honest. <laughs> We've been very pro-Lille here on this show. Um, and right from the start, they just looked an absolute nervous wreck, which really surprised me, considering, you know, we've talked about how experienced they are. Um, you know, you look at Yilmaz, he's won titles in Turkey. Um, Fonte has won a Europe, European Championship and, and titles all over Europe as well. They have plenty of other experience across the squad as well. Um, and they just weren't at it from, from the start. And Saint-Entienne were the, were the better side. Now, Saint-Entienne usually concede quite a few goals, but they actually shut up shop quite well on the night. And then Fonte, after the match, had a right-all moan on TV saying he's never seen them play like that before. They were incredible. What were they doing? <laughs> um, <laughs> which, when you're in that mindset, um, you'd know with Klopp, Kevin, obviously. Um, of course. <laughs> when you're in that type of mindset, it, it's, it's not very convincing. Um, so there does feel a kind of lack of belief there that, you know, they were able to kind of ride through the season on, on this high of, you know, up there being competing with PSG. And, and for the first time, everybody, all eyes were on them to really ram it home. Because if they'd won at the weekend, they would have only needed a point against Andre, which they probably would have got quite comfortably. Um, but the fact now that they need to win the game has put a lot of pressure on them. Um, and, and they didn't really create anything against Saint-Etienne, which is probably the biggest concern of all. Um, so if they play like that again at the weekend, you'd, you'd, you'd have to be concerned for them. So I think slight favourite is PSG at the moment. You have, you have quite a, quite a nice fixture as well to finish up. So, um, but yeah, again, like Italy and Spain, it'll certainly be the one to watch at the weekend. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely, um, I'm definitely getting sick of, of Maurizio Pochettino lifting trophies at this point. So I would say... <laughs> Definitely love uh, Lille to to secure it, but yeah, it does look a bit a bit dodgy for them coming up. But I think they might just about get over the line. Um, but PSG have done well to kind of get back up there and and uh, in and around the mix. But uh, yeah, as I said before, I think um, hopefully hopefully Lille can get over it because I think Gatier as a as a manager deserves it. He's been fantastic uh, with that squad and and with the players that he has. I mean, like. Um, Yilmaz has been just unbelievable this season, and to see that to think that he's like a thirty-five-year-old that looked like his career was done. I mean, um, yeah, he definitely deserves a bit of silverware at the end of it. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how Andre approached that game. They're quite attacking against Marseille um, in the three-two loss, and obviously they lost five-nil at PSG. They've actually lost, I think, it's seven of their last eight. So if if Lille hadn't looked so nervous uh, at the weekend, you probably would have felt that they'd comfortably take care of that that game. Um, but Andre beat Lille actually back in January as well, so that's probably adding to the nerves a bit. So um, if Lille, even if do, Lille do win, I, I can't imagine it'd be a, a comfortable 90 minutes for anybody. First, I thought you chewed your bollocks in the drive. Excuse me, <laughs> this is live. We're joined by Alan Feely, Seville-based Spanish football journalist, to take a look at the final weekend of La Liga action with the title still up for grabs. Thanks for coming, Alan, and hope you're well. I'm all good. Thanks for having me, Kevin. Always a pleasure. Good stuff. Um, so I suppose the last time you had you, we had you on, um, that kind of lead Atletico Madrid had for it was starting to dwindle and um, hanging on now by the skin of their teeth in the La Liga title race, just... Uh, at one point in February, I think they had a 10-point lead over the other contenders and that slowly uh, dwindled away. They've steadied the ship, though, over the past couple of weeks and now went to the final weekend with just two points ahead of Real Madrid, who have stormed back into the, the conversation there unbeaten, in fact, now since the end of January. Um, Atletico, they just need a win against 19th place Valladolid at the weekend. 
Um, she's surely they'll get over the line at this stage. Yeah, you'd expect them to, but Atleti, you really don't know, you know. I mean, like they have a propensity to kind of mess things up at the most pivotal stage, um, especially when things seem to be easiest for them. Do you know what I mean? Like back in uh, 2014 when they won the title last, they actually, if they had won the penultimate game, um, I can't remember who it was against. It was against the lower team anyway. They would have won the title outright, but they didn't win it. So they had to go to the Cap Nou and avoid defeat in the final day of the season. And they managed that in the end. So they kind of have a propensity to do things like this. But I guess that's already been fulfilled this season because of the nature of their win last weekend against Asasuna. I mean, like, uh, Real Madrid went to goal up. They're all playing at the same time. They were playing Athletic Bilbao in Bilbao. So, and then Atletico went to goal down at home against Asasuna. So it looked like Real Madrid were going to go into the last day of the season with the title in their hands. But then Atletico equalised to Renanoli and then got a last-minute winner through Luis Suarez to uh, take control back. So they've already had that moment where it looked like they could have blown it when you know it was theirs to lose and kind of come back to um, to kind of reclaim it, as it were. So uh, so yeah, I think the whole I think Atletico fans would be hoping that that was the kind of yeah. nadir of their uh, title <laughs> challenge, you know. And you mentioned Suarez there. Um, I think it was an 88 or 89 minute winner there um, last week against Asasuna. Um, and I suppose how much of this title kind of success, if they do get over the line, rests on him. Um, a free signing last summer from Barcelona. Um, obviously, like, you know, they were kind of happy to cut ties with him. He was um, a bloated wage on, on, on the wage bill. Um, seemed like he was kind of coming towards the. The, the twilight era of his career, but he kind of refound himself this year under Simeone, and you'd have to kind of give a lot of credit to him for for how well Atleti have done this year. Definitely, I mean, like for me, those three key players at Atleti's uh, title challenge this season is uh, Jan Oblak in goal, Marcus Llorente in midfield, and Luis Suarez up front. Because for the first half of the season, as you're mentioning, um, when they were kind of running away with things, it looked like that was primarily down to Jan Oblak and Suarez because. Oblak was basically overperforming XG in terms of his goalkeeping. He was keeping out more goals than he should have, uh, according to averages and stats. And Suarez was scoring more goals than he should have, according to averages and stats. Um, so you were kind of had a team who are basically overperforming at both ends of the pitch with their two decisive players in both boxes were, you know, world of class without a doubt. And then the second half of the season, you had Madrid get their act together and become kind of almost depressingly like inexorable. Uh, just kind of getting a result week after week. Barca were flying until the final five games when they kind of blew it, basically. Um, and Atletico went back to reality a bit in terms of the way they performed according to XG. But these three guys have been pivotal. I mean, like Jan Oblak, I think before the season, he was one of the best goalkeepers in Europe, but now I think he's the best in the world. I don't think anybody comes close to him just in the way he's playing, the saves he makes, uh, his presence, his calmness, his consistency. There's nobody like him in world football, in my opinion, for goalkeepers. Marcus Durante kind of symbolized Atleti in many ways because he was unfancied. He was basically deemed surplus requirements at Real Madrid, even though his family are steeped in the club. His father played for them. His grandfather played for them. His grand uh, uncle played for them as well. Very much coming from a, you know, a white-blooded family, you could say. And he was shunted to the side, basically. Sold to Atletico. Uh, didn't start for months, but worked his way into the team through performances and training and now exploded in An at Anfield last season in the Champions League to become this season 
uh, I would argue the best midfielder in La Liga, if not one of the best midfielders in La Liga, just in terms of his work rate, his ability on the ball, his decision-making in the final third. He's in double figures for both goals and assists. The only player, aside from Iago Aspas in La Liga, who's done that this season uh, and also done in the big moments. And then Suarez, of course, 20 goals to his name, three assists in La Liga, but also really important goals, you know? And I think, like, as you mentioned, he was he had a bloated wage packet, but he also had a bloated body, you could say, you know? He was a bit out of shape <laughs> last season. Like. Um, but uh, he's really got fit this year. Um, and like, I mean, it's a match made in heaven. Like, I mean, if you put two athletes like Luis Suarez and Diego Simeone in the same room, give them a point to prove, like you're lighting fire to a touch paper. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, Suarez is probably the, the player most driven by rage and by a sense of vengeance in European football and world football. So if you send him to a club like Atletico under a coach like Atletico, under a coach like Simeone, and give him the motivation of being basically, you know, shift shifted out there for nothing by Barcelona. Like it's 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 something else, you know. So I think it's kind of a perfect marriage of all these kind of factors coming to the fore at the same time, you know. Alan, we've discussed Cholo Simeone many times in this show. Uh, the pros and cons of having him as the manager. Um, we're still seeing the same issues with him, especially integrating new signings. Musa Dembele is the latest who seems to be constantly on the bench, even when Atletico were missing a striker and had to play uh, Lorente up front, which did get them a few points in fairness. How would you rate his overall season? Um, I think it's been a good season. Like, I mean, the problems you mentioned are always going to be problems because like, they spent a big bit of money on Joao Felix and he just has faded into obscurity as the season has gone on, really. like I mean, in the second half of the season, he's been really a, a bit part player in many ways. And like I would still have doubts personally that Simeone is the man to get the best out of a character like Joe. He's a bit temperamental in many ways. Um, and Dembele, yeah, I'm not sure what the story there is, to be honest with you. I mean, like we don't see what he's doing in training. And I think maybe the jump from Ligue 1 to La Liga might have maybe caught up with him a bit. I mean, like the way Simeone plays is so much about self-sacrifice and putting the good of the team first. Like he's no real space for individualists in many ways. So I don't know, maybe he's just not fitting into his system or whatever. Uh, but as his overall performances, it's just, it's what you see is what you get. Do you know what I mean? Like he's never going to change. He's never going to surprise you. He's not going to, you know, bend to any kind of criticism or any kind of suggestion. Like he sets his teams up in a way where he thinks they'll win the game best. He takes things game by game. He never gets carried away. He demands the same from all his players. And it's either a case of you fit in or you you leave the club, basically, you know? So um, I think, like, what makes Simeone great is this kind of unshakable self-confidence, this will to fight against the odds and kind of fight for results. And I think if you take that away from him, that kind of self unshakable self-belief, I think his whole... USB changes so I don't think it'll ever change you know I think if Atletico want to go in a different direction they need to bring somebody else in to be honest with you um, Alan how good has um, Kieran Trippier this, been this year for Atletico um, because I suppose you know there's so much been talked about the English squad selection for the summer and the whole narrative around Trent Alexander-Arnold um, but by all accounts Trippier will be selected no matter what um, and I suppose you know 
especially for people in the UK and Ireland, I suppose, with La Liga being off, um, Sky Sport is kind of out of sight and out of mind. So we aren't familiar um, with the performances of a lot of players these days. So how good has Trippier been that kind of warrants him that selection this summer? Yeah, I think definitely. I mean, like the Alexander-Ireland one is a weird one because obviously he's a superb player. Um, but, you know, just from Trippier's standpoint, he's more than deserved a call-up, I think. I mean, his attacking output this season has been so important and they don't really have a left back who can do the same thing. Um, like Simeone has experimented with, like he's deviated from the 4-4-2 shape that he's famous from this season and kind of use wingbacks a lot more, sometimes using Marcus Durante as a wingback and uh, Yannick Carrasco as well. But there's not really a left-sided equivalent to Trippier. And when Trippier was suspended for that stretch of games because of the gambling offence, ridiculous gambling offence where he, like he told his friends that he was moving to Madrid and they put a bet in or something like that. Uh, like they really suffered. And then I was actually, as crazy as it sounds to, you know, Spurs fans and English football fans, that was a big part of the reason that they fell off the wagon after Christmas because basically to replace him, Simeone repurposed Marcus Rente as a right wing back. And while he did a good job there, he missed his presence in the central midfield and the attacking midfield positions which is a big blow. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's a fantastic player. I think he wants to come back to England this summer. I think he's had his fill of Spain, which is fair enough. Like, he's 30 years old now. He's rehabilitated his reputation after the kind of problems from the season after the 2018 World Cup in terms of, you know, not being a guaranteed starter, being shipped out by Pochettino and Spurs. I think he wants to come back to England. As an Evertonian, I'd love him to come to Everton. Um you know, but I think he'd come to several different clubs, to be honest with you. I think that uh, he's a very, very good player. And I think he's, he's improved exponentially under Simeone because he's learned that kind of whole attitude that Simeone is all about. Like, we talk about Joao Felix, who maybe hasn't fully adapted to the whole cholismo, as they say here. But Trippier definitely has, and he's changed for the better because of it. I don't know, Simon, would you take uh, Trippier back at Spurs after his Spanish spell? <laughs> You know what? I I probably would at this point. Yeah. Um. I I was never Trippier's biggest fan at Tottenham, but I he's kind of one of those players that you you only realize how good he is when he's gone from the club. Like his output was always fantastic for Spurs. Um. But there was just seemed to be something lacking with him under Pochettino, and it, he never really kind of hit the strides that that I suppose that he could have. And it's great to see him do so well at uh, at Atleti and I don't think anyone would have imagined him being there when he left Spurs but yeah it's great to see him uh, doing well and I, I personally would like to see him back in the Premier League I don't whether it's at Spurs or it's at Everton or or somewhere he can definitely do a job and like he's he's definitely got a few uh, years in his legs yet so uh, yeah it'd be great to see him back um, Alan quick word on Real Madrid I suppose and I mean they're the forum team in the league at the moment. I think they're unbeaten since the end of January. And I suppose you have to give a lot of credit to um, to Zidane for kind of keeping them in the title race. Um, their European run kind of came to a fairly um, fairly dismal enough uh, end against Chelsea, I suppose. Um, they got over the line against Liverpool. But fortuitously, there was a, a couple of um, poor performances on Liverpool's side that, that helped Madrid over the line. But in, on a domestic front, I mean... To to be still be within a shout at this point um, is fairly impressive. But do you think to just let a little bit too late now that they're playing Villarreal this weekend? Um, 
Villarreal obviously near towards the top of the table. Uh, I think they're in sixth or seventh place and um, still in contention for uh, Europa League places. So it's not going to be an easy one by any means. Um, yeah, I mean, I think with Villarreal, I think they have an eye on the Europa League, as in the United game the following Wednesday night. They, it's been their main focus all season. That's why they brought in Unai Emery. Um, domestically, their disappointment has been their season has been a disappointment in many ways because, like, they finished fifth last season, and the, the expectation this year was that they push Sevilla for a fourth place finish, and they're way off it. They're in seventh. They're actually out of the Europa League places at the moment. They're behind Betis and Real Sociedad. And they need both of them to drop points and to beat Madrid to actually get into the Europa League places for next season. So I think that, you know, in this game, they're going to be primarily focused on United and that's going to be their main ambition. So I'd expect Madrid to win that game comfortably. Uh, this season, yeah, it's been a weird one for them. I mean, before Christmas, there were serious questions over Zidane's job. Uh, they got knocked out of the Copa del Rey by the third tier, Alcoyano, which is just crazy. Um... The Champions League showing was a disaster initially, but they recovered and got to the semi-finals, which is more than most people thought they would get to. And they were obviously showing up against Chelsea. Um, a Chelsea team definitely riding a really good wave under Thomas Tuchel. I think they're a bit more vulnerable now than they were then. Um, but just a very well-coached team full of youth and energy and vitality in comparison to Madrid, who are, you know, to be fair, they were destroyed by injuries, like serious injuries to top players, their key men, the likes of Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, Karim Benzema, have all played so many games this season. Zidane doesn't trust the squad players to kind of come in and rotate. He's been playing virtually the same 11 every week when everyone's fit. Sergio Ramos has been absent. He shouldn't have started that game. He's nowhere near fit and he was injured straight again afterwards. Uh, so I think that game wasn't a reflection of where Madrid are right now. I think it's the end of a long season, a COVID impact of the season, where they've been pushed to the limit. Uh, but there's no doubt that they're far from the kind of power that they once were. Uh, but they are they are Real Madrid though, and I think they've been winning every week because they're you know they know how to win. They have key players who can step up in the clutch moments and deliver. Uh, they have a very smart coach in Zinedine Zidane. And they have and also the you know their 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 resources. I mean, like people are always going about their finance like about their injury problems, as if, you know, poor Madrid. And I'm always going, they have more resources than every other club in La Liga. So if, they, if they're getting so many injuries, it's their fault for not planning their squad correctly. Like, they didn't play Martin Odegaard, so he went to Arsenal. They didn't play Luka Jovic, so he went to Eintracht Frankfurt. You know, so like, if you play these players and rotated them and kept them happy, they would have stayed and they would be there to supplant Tony Cruz when he's COVID positive or Modric when he's picked up an injury. But because they're not there, you're promoting Antonio Blanco from the Castilla, the reserves team, or Samuel Chust in center back, or these players. It's kind of, I don't know. But uh, So I'm kind of skeptical about the poor Madrid, you know, injury hit and all that kind of stuff. But the fact is they are, and it's a feat for them to get this far. But uh, but yeah, I, I don't think they'll do it on Saturday. I think this is Atleti's now. I think their moment, like I said earlier, was against Asuna last weekend, and I think that they'll finish the job on Saturday. And I mean, just looking at the Madrid squad at the moment, there's there's a kind of a huge gulf between, say, aging superstars, the likes of Benzema and Hazard, and then a kind of really young contingent that kind of haven't really made the grade yet. Obviously, there's, you know, some exciting young players like um, um, Ferland Mendy and um, Mariano and um, 
Vinicius Jr. But in terms of the kind of the older contingent, um, I suppose Hazard has been a huge disappointment. Um, didn't particularly stand out against Chelsea either on his on his comeback. How much of a kind of a damaging um, signing has him, considering the, the outlay they spent on him, and, and now it looks like they already need to kind of find another player for that type of role. Yeah, I mean, like it's kind of a weird one because, like you mentioned, the young players there, like Mariano, he, I, he's just not cut out to be a Madrid player. He'll never make it. He's not good enough. I don't think he is. Like you know, uh, I think that he'll be moved on this summer if they can to cut the wage a bit a bit. Vinicius. He's a very talented player, but again, I don't think he has that special mental part of his game to just be a killer. Like, I mean, we saw against Liverpool what he can do. He can he can really hurt teams, um, and he has the ability to do it, but he's just not confident enough. Like, he passes when he should shoot sometimes, and I think that sometimes when you're playing at that level, that's not something you learn, it's something you're born with, and I don't think he has that. And he's also not that young. I mean, he's been, this is his third season at Madrid like do you know what mm. I mean so as a first team player so I don't know but with Hazard I mean yeah I mean like it's really phenomenal how how much of a failure he's been at Madrid like he arrived first of all I think it was seven kilograms overweight um has not strings uh consecutive running games together I think he scored four goals in a Madrid shirt so far um just been a complete failure for the money spent on him but I think what Hazard and then it comes down to mental mentality again. I think that like when Hazard was at Chelsea, he was indulged. He was a star man. He could live a comfortable life because he was 23, 24, 25. And he could eat his pastries and all that kind of stuff and get away with it, you know, because his body was uh, young enough to recover. But I think once you hit 30, <laughs> once you hit 30, you can't get away with that anymore. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I can confirm that. I can tell you for sure now. The, the metabolism... <laughs> disappears <laughs> pretty quick yeah it does yeah it does yeah and like i think chelsea is like when he's at chelsea it's like the team is built around him do you know and uh i think he played football he like play was the operative word he was playing the game whereas at madrid they expect different things from you and like zidane once said every player loses the crowd you have to win them back like the chelsea fans what they saw talent like Hazard they want him to do well but the Madrid fans will look at you will they'll say okay are you good enough and if you're not good enough initially they're going to come down to you at some bricks many players have done it before or have seen it happen to them but the great players are the ones who overcome that and win them back and once you win them back you're a club legend you're David Beckham Roberto Carlos that kind of character and I don't think that Hazard is that kind of competitive animal and I don't think that he'll ever make it at Madrid because I think the the values they hold in sporting excellence, in winning above all ev- above all everything else, winning at all costs, he doesn't have that in his body, you know. So iron his mind, like so. I don't know. It's just a match uh, not made in heaven, to be honest with you, like. Yeah, I suppose he he never really fitted that kind of galactical profile. Um, and I just want to say, I, uh, Mariano is twenty seven, so I kind of incorrectly <laughs> applied him as a, as a young player. Um, <laughs> Uh, just looking at his 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 spell here, I mean, he, he really passed me by there with a with a couple of years in a in a, in Leon and the uh, the underage teams at um or the B and C team at Real Madrid. Um, just a quick one then on Zidane, I suppose. I mean, he's already left once. Um, he left for Leicester last time, but do you think uh, this is going to be his last season? Um, and his second stint at Madrid as manager. 
Yeah, I think well, I mean, you mentioned he left twice. He left once. He actually left twice, twice because when he was a player, he walked away when he could have carried on. Yeah. Like, he, like he just played uh, the World Cup final. You know, like he was a, still a world class player. But listen, Zidane is just a remarkably impressive fella. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, like that's the joke is that Florentino Perez he wins with everybody except Zidane. Like, you look at Cristiano Ronaldo, he gets rid of Cristiano in the end. He wins over Cristiano. He outlasts Cristiano. Iker Casillas, same thing. Guti, same thing. Raul, same thing. All of these top players all get used to a degree by Florentino and then binned. But Zidane is the man who's never been used. Like, he, le- he leaves in his own terms all the time. And I think he's just a remarkable personality as well as a, a coach. And yeah, I think it will be his last season. I think he's tired. I think he knows the squad needs a regeneration. I think because of the dire straits they were in the last time when Lopetegui and then Solari were in control and they got humiliated in the Champions League and they were way off it in La Liga. I think he may have felt that he left a bit too early and that the players that he loved and coached and worked with, the likes of Tony Cruz, Luka Modric, Sergio Ramos, uh, were worthy of kind of, you know, a one last go, and they got that. They got that last league title after he came back. But I think now he knows that a real clearing of the decks is needed. New blood is needed brought in, both in the playing staff and the coaching staff. And uh, I think him leaving is the best way to do that. You know, clean state with a new coach. Um, but yeah, I was just looking at the kind of list of of the bookies' favourites to take over. Massimiliano Allegri um, is the bookies' favourite at the moment. Um, Raúl is there as well. I'm surprised to see Guti. Um, third or fourth on the list, um, considering his, I suppose, relative inexperience as manager. Is there any kind of indication um, at the moment of who's be uh, be favoured by the fans to take over? Well, the fans want Raúl, without a doubt. There was a poll in market mm. the other day, and like it's a clear majority want Raúl. Um, but I think Allegri is a most likely choice. I think that it's a very delicate moment for Spanish football and for Real Madrid, and I think that. Florentino is very much aware of what could happen if things go wrong with his appointments and they bring in a rookie. Whereas if you bring in somebody like Allegri, you might not get exciting football, but you'll get winning football. I mean, he knows what he's doing. And also, because he's not part of the club, it's been okay to talk about Barcelona in recent days. They're talking about, you know, they're talking about killing the sacred cows. And uh, Laporta is wary, apparently, of bringing in Xavi because Xavi was friends with all of said sacred cows. And Raul is also very much of the club. Whereas if you bring somebody from the outside with a bit of a ruthless streak and a bit of an ego like Allegri has, he'll wipe the decks clean. He'll bring in his own men and he'll turn Madrid into a winning machine again. And that's what Madridistas value above all else. Uh, quickly, before we move on to uh, Barcelona, um, what's the reaction been like to Karim Benzema's re- recalling into the French team? Um, it's five years now since he last played and the whole kind of blackmail scandal with um, Mathieu Valbuena and um, Deschamps and, and, and the French Football Federation have been fairly steadfast in, in their position for a couple of years now but for him to be recalled for the Euros this summer just a couple of months before the, the court case is actually to go ahead um, I suppose is a little bit of surprise but I suppose he's been Madrid's best performer over the past couple of years so um, uh, has there been kind of any response to his, uh, his uh, surprise in return there? Yeah, well, I mean, the whole interview that he gave to kind of annoy Deschamps in the first place 
um, where he kind of claimed that Deschamps wasn't picking him because he was being influenced by a racist part of French society, was in Marca. And they never fail in mentioning that. They love mentioning that because they got, they got the exclusive, you know. And it's been overwhelmingly positive. Like, I mean, as far as the Madrid press are concerned, they're completely in Benzema's camp. Uh, and they think his name should be cleared. Like, they're quite partisan, to be honest with you. I mean, Benzema has been not just their most important player. He's literally held them together at times this season with the goals he scored. And last season, too. I mean, I think without him, they would not have won the La Liga title last season. And he's been phenomenal, you know. And I think after so many years in, you know, the famous BBC trident of him, Cristiano and Gareth Bale, like he was always a lesser light, but he's outlived the board of them. And he's been he's there a decade after coming, still plugging away, still playing really, really well. And I think he's, uh, I think his form has basically made it impossible to not select him. I think in 2016, it was different. Um, he was still that kind of third wheel, you could say. Whereas now in 2020, or sorry, 2018, I mean. Uh, but in 2020, I think if France didn't win the Euros and they left Karim at home, there'd be questions asked, to be honest with you, you know? And I think Deschamps is putting his, uh, like he's leaving after this summer, I think he's putting his desire to win back-to-back major Europe, major titles, World Cup and a European title above his uh, moral stance, you could say. Alan, moving on to Barcelona then. Um, it's really fallen apart since the Granada match. Uh, and I remember that watching that match, it reminded me a bit of 2014, where it kind of felt inevitable as the match went on that they were going to drop points. Um, Kuman's response to you know the game turning against them, apart from getting himself sent off, seemed very slow with not changing Mariba off the wing at halftime and then Granada coming back into the game. Uh, and since then, obviously, they've dropped points to Atletico Levante and Celta Vigo. Um, not much money to spend, potentially signing Aguero on a two-year contract, as reported today. Um, and again, Xavi linked back to the club, but again, he's struggled in terms of, you know, Al Sadd and the Asian Champions League. What do you foresee for them over the summer? <sighs> Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> like, it's actually a joke. Like, I mean, this week has been mental. Like, since the Celta game, which basically, you know, confirmed Kumin's head is in the block. Like, it's been chaos. Like, I mean, Laporta spoke out basically saying that there's going to be massive changes over the summer. Like I mentioned, they're going to kill all the sacred cows. But then the managerial process, selection process, is just, like, chaotic. Like, I mean, either the journalists are making it up as they go along, the Catalan journalists, or the club have no idea what they're doing. Because they're literally, like, first it was Xavi who is set to take over. Then Hansi Flick came into the picture. Then Eric Ten Hag was mentioned. And then Klopp was mentioned as well. And now the latest line is that, as I said earlier, Xavi isn't wanted because he's too friendly with the sacred cows to be killed. Uh, Klopp and Ten Hag are complicated. Ten Hag just signed a new deal. Klopp won't leave Liverpool at the moment. And then Flick is the most likely number one choice. But like... I don't know. I mean, I don't follow German football closely enough to be able to have an opinion on it. But I was speaking with Jasmine Baba, who's on a podcast I do as well. She lives in Germany. She follows German football very closely. And I was speaking to her about it, and she was saying that there's links kind of emerging today in Germany, right, that it's actually legit, that they had a conversation, that kind of stuff. But, like, my takeaway feeling was, like, is Flick as good as we think he is? Like, I mean, like, if you look at his track record, the only 
runaway success he's had as an individual coach has been with Byron. And like you're inheriting a ridiculous squad of players there. And I know they, they weren't good under the previous coach, but I think like has he done enough? Is his body of work showing enough that he can come into a foreign climate with, with, no, with no Spanish, with a club as chaotic as Barcelona, with the pressure and the off-field politics that brings and succeed? I'm not entirely convinced, like, you know, but uh, I guess we'll see. And then regarding the playing staff, it all depends on Messi, really, because like if Messi stays, which I think is most likely at this point, Aguero will sign. I think he's it's a five million per season deal, which is fifty eight percent pay cut. And when he earns at Man City, he earns twelve million quid a year at Man City, so it's quite a pay cut. But it's reflective of his desire to play for Barcelona uh, and their financial situation, and also uh, you know just his decline in the last year, you could say. But he'll only be signed if Messi stays. Um, Memphis Depay is also on the table, but he'll only be signed if Koeman stays. And Koeman will only stay if Laporta can't find anyone better. That's that's the, that's the situation. That's literally, that's, I'm not even joking. Like The reason we don't know about Koeman continuing is because Laporta is literally keeping him on red until he can find out whether he can get anybody better. It's like a joke. Like. And then there's also Wijnaldum is in the picture to come in in a free transfer potentially. That's again conditional on Koeman staying. Uh, Eric Garcia seems to be pretty much a done deal uh, for Man City. And at the same time, Barca want to trim the squad, basically. They want to trim the wage bill in half, 50%. So basically, what, how they intend to do that is negotiate contracts with Messi, obviously. But Messi will be spread across the different arrangements. So it's like they sign him for a two-season deal, and then he goes to the MLS. As, and then while he's in the MLS, he's a Barcelona ambassador. So he gets paid the same amount he would in normal times, but it's staggered across like a lifetime contract, basically. But for PK and for Sergio Roberto and for Sergio Busquets, they're basically going to lowball them in the summer. And if they don't like it, they can leave. If they accept the changes, they can stay. And then the rest of the squad, there's nine players they're trying to get rid of. Off the top of my head, I think it's Neto, Junior Ferpo, uh, Felipe Coutinho, um, Ricky Puage, uh, Martin Braithwaite. The Puage thing is is very strange, uh, I find, because you would have thought he would have been a perfect type of Koeman player, um, and yet he can barely get any minutes. Is there a reason for that? Obviously, Pedri has done very well this season, but Ricky Puge is really highly rated at Barcelona uh, and in Spain in general, uh, and yet Koeman almost seems to be fighting against that. Yeah, I think... Like again, you're gonna going off of like rumor and stuff. Like it's kind of speculative, but like the, the the sentiment seems to be that he's a bit up himself in many ways. Like he comes from really rich, he comes from the richest part of Catalonia, which is the richest part of Spain. Basically, he's very pijo, as they say here, with like very posh, um, and he's very cocky too. Like he kind of he's, he he walks around, he carries himself in a certain way, and whereas the likes of Ronald Araujo and Oscar Mengueza and Pedri have come in and, you know, basically worked their arse off to get into the first team, been super humble, uh, learns, done everything that they can to please Coleman, to please the coaches, to please the senior players. I think Pooj is a bit more individualistic and I don't think that Koeman likes that. There's a section of the Barcelona support base that really want to see him get more minutes, but uh, I don't think Koeman rates him entirely. I don't think several key figures of the club rate him either. So I think that a loan spell 
or uh, even a transfer could be on the cards this summer. To be honest with you, Alan, I just wanted to I just wanted to ask you there about Barcelona next season. I mean, they seem to be a kind of team in transition where they have on one end of the scale. Uh, the older players in in Messi, Busquets, etc., and then they have the very younger younger end of the spectrum, Imengeta and and Pedri and the likes. Are they kind of stuck in that middle section where there's not that many players there that can fill that role? Um, like, how do you see next season going for them? Well, they're a victim of their own success, a bit like Madrid. I mean, you, when you have a generation that's as good as they were, like it's very hard to move on from that generation. Do you know? Um, like the crux really is Neymar. Neymar leaving is the biggest thing because when Neymar left, Neymar was Messi's successor. And if Neymar and Messi are playing in the same team with Suarez and you can bring in good players, then that team is going to flourish and continue to develop. But the reality is that their transfer policy post the treble of 2015 was a disgrace. They brought in mediocre players like Andre Gomez, for instance, uh, even like the Everton lads, like Andrew Gomez, Yeri Mina, like neither of them are Barcelona players, to be honest with you. Luca Dean is a Barcelona player, but he was behind Jordi Alba, which is a very hard place to be. Like, how are you going to get into that team? But Yeri Mina and Andrew Gomez are, they just weren't good enough to be Barcelona players. Similarly, you know, Felipe Coutinho, not good enough to be a Barcelona player. Just not of the right mentality, do you know? So they spent these, these huge funds. Like, they reinvested the money when they sold Neymar in Usman Dembele and Coutinho. And, like, Dembele is showing green shoots this season. He's a, he's, he's a talented player, but he's so injury-prone and he's been so inconsistent since he came that he's not been worth the money they invested in him, you know? Similarly, you have the likes of Samuel L. Titi, you know, just random purchases, like... Um, What's the Wolves player again? The right back. His name escapes me. The Portuguese guy. Semedo. Ruben Semedo. Yeah, Nelson Semedo. Nelson Semedo, yeah. And then also you have the likes of, you know, I don't know, I could go on. Like Mateus Fernandes is very key to ball this season. You know, it's just these players who are signed for big money, put on big wages, and they're just not good enough. Like it, you know? And then eventually the squad gets infected with this because you have one cabal of players who are top players, like the likes of Messi, Pique, Suarez these guys, but they're getting older. And then you just haven't brought in talent to supplant them and to help them transition. Do you know? It's kind of just, it's, it's a weird one. And because those guys were so good, like for so long, they were still winning titles in 2016, 2017. It was kind of papering over the cracks. And it's only the last couple of years where they've collapsed in Europe that we see the true measure of where they are. And basically, they just got lazy and complacent on success. The Barcelona board, the Barcelona scouting staff brought in mediocre players, had them carried by their world-class players. And now that their old-class players are in the 30s, they're paying the price. I'm just looking at some of their, their recent signings. Even, um, and I know it was kind of a, a, a swappy at the end, but um, Miralem Pjanic has barely flicked a needle for them this year. I actually forgot about him, to be honest with you. I literally, that's, I would have mentioned him in the nine players to be sold because he's one of them, but I forgot about him. He's not my headspace. He hasn't kicked the ball. Like, Komen just stopped using him, like, literally, which is kind of crazy because he's playing Elish Moriba consistently, who's only a teenager. He's mm. playing Pedri into the ground. Pedri's playing too much football for a guy his age, like, uh, and he's not giving Pjanic any minutes. Like, surely if you're playing against the, you know, a mid-table team, an Elche or somebody, you can play him. But uh, but no, so yeah, I mean, like 
that that's almost an embodiment of how murky Barcelona have been in the last few years. I mean, that deal with Juventus for Arthur, basically accounting, you know, swapping uh, Arthur for Pjanic and, you know, changing money to alter with income and outcome and that kind of yeah. stuff and expenses. That's what it is basically, you know, because it's not, it's something that's been done on paper because it's not happening on the pitch. Um, final word then, I suppose, on Messi. And like you said, there's a lot of dominoes left to fall and it all kind of rests on, on whether Leo Messi stays or goes. And I mean, like, he's not going to come to England at this point. Uh, you Maybe Manchester City, but you'd imagine they'd be more, um, you know, more better prepared with their money considering the outlay that it would take to get Messi um, to come to the club. Um, he's not going to go to anyone in Germany probably won't go to anyone in Italy even PSG now are likely kind of um, considering the way they're going with some kind of fairly um, expensive older talents they're probably kind of cooling on um, the likelihood of, of spending a huge amount of money on, on bringing Messi in so is it kind of inevitable that he's going to go to somewhere like MLS um, or kind of further afield and kind of finish out his career as a kind of a, a pseudo Barcelona still on the payroll sort of a an ambassador like you said that's most likely I think yeah I mean like the only option at the moment is stay in Barcelona or go to PSG the Man City links have died completely um, and no other club seems to be in a position to take on his wages or to take him on I think it's it's been clear for a while now that the option is PSG or Barcelona and I think it'll be Barcelona I mean like I think that there's been enough progress this season enough young players coming through to give him a bit of hope for the future and I think also the fact that Bartomeu, the president who annoyed him so much, is gone. Um, and Laporta is in. Laporta is the guy who signed him. He's the guy who gave him his debut. He's the guy who, you know, was with him through the early years. He's like a father figure to him anyways. And he also has made it clear that he'll do whatever Messi wants. He'll build a team for Messi in many ways. So I think that, you know, everything is in place for Messi to continue. But at the same time, there is an element of doubt there. Uh, he's giving an, an interview with Argentinian media this weekend with Diario Ole. And uh, I think, you know, maybe that could be when he announces intentions. There's also reports that he won't announce his intentions until after the uh, Copa America. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, like the, 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 the party line from Barcelona in the Catalan press at the moment is that they expect him to stay. It'd be a shock if he leaves. But they're wary of the threat PSG pose. Very interesting. Alan, thanks a million for coming on tonight. No worries. Thanks a million for having me. Enjoyed it. Respect. Respect. Respect, man. Respect. 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 So we leave it there, so. Okie doke. Good night and God bless. <laughs> <laughs>